This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Grips. For comfort, durability, and grip diameter options, Renthal Street has a grip for everyone. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. On today's Paddock Pass podcast, we're looking back to the start of winter testing in World SBK. We've got myself, Steve English, Gordon Ritchie as ever on the pod. But we've got a special guest on the Superbike edition of the Paddock Pass podcast this week. We've got probably the world's biggest Superbike fan, David Emmett. You're on the uh, on the podcast again. I would not say I'm uh, the world's biggest Superbike fan, but I'm certainly a fan of Superbikes. I mean, uh, I, I know for a fact there are people who are bigger fans of Superbikes than, than me. But I mean, like, I love it. I always enjoy watching the race. Because the other thing is, like, watching Superbikes, I get to a chance to be an absolute ignorant idiot who doesn't know anything and just enjoy the racing instead of having to sit there and analyze it and try to be objective and all the rest of it. I can sit there screaming for uh, this rider or that to win. I have to say being a big ignorant idiot is really no issue if you come to the World Superbike Party. Oh, Gordo, Gordo, you're with us as well. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of prerequisite, really. That, that tends to be the number one qualification, mate. That's, that's what we like. Gordo, it's good to have Dave on the show, though, because obviously when Aston doesn't clash, David, you come to the Dutch round or you try and get to one round a year. But it's always good, Gordo, whenever GP paddock people come to Superbikes and they're able to actually really see what it's like on the inside rather than just looking at it from the outside from a million miles away. Yeah, it's always different when you're there. It's always different when it's it's happening in front of you and you can actually be part of it, um, which is something that Superbikes got quite a lot of is that ability to kind of get in amongst it, um, get close to the riders and so on. There's a lot of fan interaction. Um, it's a slightly more old-fashioned paddock. Um, it's becoming a bit more pr but ultimately you can still get a lot more work done as an individual if you need to go and speak to people. You don't have as quite as many hoops to jump through. Um, and the fan experience is great. You know, it's just a good atmosphere. Yeah, you don't get, you know, 100,000 people a day like you get at some GPs, and I don't know if that's ever going to come back. But it's it's still a great fun weekend at Superbike in three races as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought that was because, I mean, one of the things that I really love about Superbikes is that fan experience. You actually sort of getting into the middle of it. I mean, it is easier for Superbikes because, you you know, you haven't got 100,000 uh, people turning up. You've got sort of 20, 30,000. So it is easier to let people actually into the paddock. But like the having Park Ferme and the podium in the middle of the paddock, you know, in the middle of the fans is just awesome. I get uh, goosebumps every time you sort of see it on the TV and that's exactly what it should be like it should be bringing it in again i really enjoyed uh, valencia motor gp where they bought the sprint podium into the fan area and you know they were there the, the the riders were there in front of the fans that's that's the way it should be i mean i understand why you've got the podium people standing up in front of uh you know they're standing up in front of the grandstands but it's so distant there's such an enormous the podium is always on the op- opposite side of the track to the grandstands it, it's just not the same sort of intensity you know you can't sort of the thing the thing i love about superbikes is you can reach out and touch them you know you can walk through the garages you can you can look at the people will be working on bikes and you can see what they're doing and you know it's not sort of all all these little modesty screens they're putting up in just in case you find out that they're using an M6 nut instead of an M8 nut on their brake caliper, um, that sort of that sort of madness. Who's using the M8, Dave? I am not at liberty to uh, to tell you that because if I do, then someone will get fired. There are one or two teams that do use all those screens and so on, and it doesn't. To me, it doesn't go down well on Superbike because it's Superbike. They're not prototypes. They have to declare everything to the FIM, and if you run X bike. The guy five garages down is also using X bike. I, I would I would have a ban on any kind of thing like that when there's any kind of track action going on. In my opinion, it's one thing they need to say. Okay, you know, you, there's no secrets here. It's not MotoGP. It's not prototype. You know, this everything's got to be declared. They can't. To me, they wouldn't be allowed to work behind any modesty screens. But there's only one or two people in our pad that do it. Um, but I'm not a fan of it. Dave, just for you, um, one of the questions, obviously, through the course of the last year has been, you know, Top Rack's future at one stage, whenever it looked like maybe there was a chance to go to MotoGP, obviously stayed with BMW. 
this is one of those riders that for us in World Superbikes, we've been excited to see how good he can be. What did it mean for you whenever he decided to stay in Superbikes? Personally, I'm glad he stayed in Superbikes because I think he is... Um, he's just built for Superbikes. He's built... The, the, the way he rides... Everything is built around superbikes. The way you ride a MotoGP bike now is so different. Um, actually, making the switch is a lot more difficult because you're braking differently. You're uh, turning the bike differently. You're accelerating differently. And that's uh, as the technologies change, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Or, you know, the, the, the difference gets more and more and more. And the other thing is Toprak is a massive personality. Um, and, you know, World Superbikes to me should be about, you know, personalities it needs the personalities uh and you know just watching watching top rack ride to me it is a joy and i think he would have struggled much more in uh, MotoGP. the question is would he have had the time to adapt you need i mean riders now are saying you need two uh, uh two years to adapt to riding from riding one MotoGP bike to the next MotoGP bike so the step from MotoGP to or from world superbikes to MotoGP is different maybe in the future if we switch to pirelli tires there is talk that might be possible in 27 then then things might change a little bit then then that would be one factor less to think about I think uh, I agree with your point. Uh, uh, lots of your points there. Uh, I think what's happened and why it's even more profound now is because in the past there was always that jump. You're going from nationals to say superbike, world superbike. Then you would be going from superbike to aspire to go to MotoGP. So there was always a jump up in level. The problem is that because of tire, single make tires, because of the different ways the bikes of uh, of, of being the way that the national level superbikes are moving away from world superbikes, which have got a little bit more technology and a lot more electronics on them, um, we're actually not just changing the, the gap up and down between those classes from national to world superbike to MotoGP, you're actually changing the distance between them because of all the things you say. That's what's a new thing. In the past, there was always you had to come up a level to go up and prove yourself there and then go up to the next level, the final level. The problem is now the distance between those things has got greater because of, partly because of technology, partly because of the training scheme inside MotoGP. You know, there's a lot, a, a lot of uh, technology changes between the Superbike classes from national to world have prevented a growth from nationals into worlds. You know, so the, it's actually gaps between them as well as the level. So the level is probably higher, different, but the gaps between everything is much, much greater, much greater than even five years ago, 10 years ago. Gordo, Dave just talked about the adaptation to a MotoGP bike. Toprak's got an adaptation to a superbike to do as well. He's obviously switching from Yamaha to BMW. We've had that first test now, and it seemed like it was a really positive test for Toprak. Yeah, um, I think Toprak's one of those kind of people who will be able to ride anything. He does have a particular style, but that's also uh, partly because of the nature of the bike he had, You making the maximum of the, the package he had on a Yamaha. He, ride, he rode the Yamaha different from he rode the Kawasaki, which he was on before and won races on before. Won the mini races in a World Championship on a Yamaha, which is a different bike. Um, and now he's moved to a different manufacturer, which will demand different things of him. And Hopefully, with all the new things that are going on in BMW, they'll be able to bring the development package towards his natural riding style. So that should, in my book, should be two positives. Is you know he'll be able to adapt to the BMW quicker than ninety nine percent of superbike riders, and they'll see real a real improvement in results when they give him the bike the way he wants it. Dave, obviously one of the big things for Top Rack is he's able to bring Phil Marin across with him. You know Phil from his time working in MotoGP and. The interaction and the relationship between a rider and the crew chief, it can never be underestimated, really. No, I mean, it's, it's the most important relationship in, in all of racing, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, uh, in MotoGP, what Ducati do, and I don't know if they do this in superbikes, but I, I get the idea that they do. They keep um, basically their crew chief and the data engineer with the rider whenever you know whenever you're being moved around between teams whatever they try to keep that relationship to, together because it's uh, um 
it is like a marital relationship. You develop a kind of a, a, a particular mode of communication. You understand each other. Um, uh, the rider understands uh, the, the the crew chief. The crew chief understands what the uh, rider is trying to say rather than listening to exactly the words that he's saying. Um, so that 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 makes a difference. That 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 is that's really important. Um, that kind of relationship is what allows you to actually make a progression. And I think it's sometimes. It, well, it it can depend. The culture between different factories can be very difficult for the crew chief as well. You know, to understand how to fit into the crew chief, how to how to work with it. Um, just sort of two things that I that I thought were interesting. First of all, seeing uh, the, I think uh, in the uh, PR for BMW, they had a picture of Toprak um, uh, going into turn six at uh, Jerez with the with the bike on the nose and the rear wheel sort of waving around in the air. Very familiar, exactly what you expect from Toprak. I, I thought that was sort of that that gave you a lot of hope that he was going to be able to make the uh, the, the adaptation. And the other thing is today they just announced that they've got uh, Sylvain Guintoli and um, uh, Bradley Smith as test riders, and it really looks like test riders are becoming even in superbikes. I mean, in MotoGP, the, the the role of the test rider is becoming more and more and more important. Um, if you look at the level of of, of test riders now. Uh, it's it's just astonishing. So you you can sort of see that it's becoming more and more important. Maybe in superbikes as well. I mean, uh, Gordo, ha- is the role of the test rider becoming more important? And, and what kind of role do you think that Gwintley and, and Bradley are going to are going to play? Yes, I mean the limitation on the number of test races is something that the factory teams, which remember are the ones who are doing all the development for the secondary teams in superbike now, um, because they've all got offshoots and. Ultimately, the rules dictate that you have to give a certain level of support all the parts that you're testing. So you're you're the the main factory team until the ones recently that have decided to go for test riders are doing all that via the two top riders at the time who've got very limited time to test. Um, so everybody's now growing their testing system, whether or not it's a full test team. That's obviously the BMW thing. Is they've made a lot of changes behind the scenes. I think it will become essential. Um, when especially when you have a new bike or a, you're having to make a step forward like Honda, like BMW, they're the ones that have to catch up to the other guys. Um, so no, it's no surprise they've, they've went for that quality of rider and, and a full setup. It is part of a greater number of changes behind the scenes at BMW. I remember during the ball door, it was basically well known at that stage Sylvan was going to be a BMW rider for the following year you know tying in with his endurance racing and all that and Gordo we were doing commentary and uh, it popped up on the screen Sylvan Gintoli signs with BMW for the 2024 season and then very quickly we had the directors in our ears saying no 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 that's an accident that's an accident we don't know that he signed <laughs> so it's taken about four months for it to be confirmed but uh, there was no real doubt that Sylvan was going to do this. I was pretty pleased whenever I saw Brad got the job as well. David, obviously, you've you've known Bradley the whole way through his Grand Prix career, basically. And he was always very good for, you know, the feedback he'd give us, very methodical, very informed. So a test rider role in superbikes, it's a good change for him. He hasn't been able to get the results as a, as a racer anytime he's been on the bike recently, if you think back to when he was on the Tenkate bike in the Supersport class, it looked like there was going to be an opportunity to race with that team. And that's really what he needed, a full season to be able to show what he could do. But as it is, test rider, you'd hope that for Brad's sake, there's either wild cards or, you know, even IDM races or something like that for him to be able to show a little bit of something. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons why they have Michele Piero racing in uh, CIV in the Italian Championship, just to keep him sharp. Um, uh, <laughs> it didn't work out quite so well at the end of the, uh, this season with um, Piero getting taken out in the uh, in the final race. But uh, still, it, it's that sharpness which you really need to maintain, that sort of hunger. Uh, yeah, Bradley was incredibly, uh, incredibly analytic, very intelligent. Um, uh, obviously, he had a, a, a test role for a while with Aprilia as well and helped that project forward. So he's clearly proven. Uh, uh, Sylvain, um, absolutely top notch, also e- extremely intelligent, extremely smart, um, always interesting to talk about, thinks very carefully about uh, all aspects of riding and racing. So yeah, I, I think they've done really well. And it is interesting that, that 
because that to me has always seemed to be the problem with BMW's World Superbike program is that they um, they've got lots of ambition, but it's all sort of vaguely undirected. It's all going off in in lots of different directions, and I think you saw that perhaps a little bit with them um, uh, with Ducati making a step. Maybe I don't know what was it three, four, five years ago um, when we had the Aruba when they got the Aruba sponsorship. I think it got it, it, the, the the team changed management, and it's just been much better organised and much better run. Yeah, and uh, that's one of the things for field racing. The basically the the team side of things they've been able to have so much success from that Gordo just to go back to Top Rack and BMW we saw him test in Portimao we saw him like David said go to Jerez the team also went to Valencia as well they basically spent a week chasing the sun down in the Iberian Peninsula Top Rack on his first experience on the bike there was a I think it was a no limits track day group was out so Top Rack's darting in and out of well fast riders by every regard except for world championship riders and uh, for top rack he was able to do 142s in portimao on that first day and then 42s in the damp conditions the second day as well so that's actually pretty good he was low one minute 40s in Jerez. haven't seen the times from valencia yet but it does give an indication that he's pretty much been able to hit the ground running on that bike yeah i think so um and i think that they know that deal's been a while in the coming so i'm sure they understand what they need to do for him vaguely, and he will have an understanding even before he got on the bike of what he was expecting to find. Um, I think they've made a pretty good start. The on first contact, they've made a very good start. Um, and top right guy special, you know, it's simple as that. He's just a special rider. So when they do get it together, I think we'll see big improvements on what they've done already. And what they've done already, even in, in the, the ultimate arbiter of lap times, is is not too shabby. Um, the only question mark is how soon it all melts together, melts together, sorry, into a proper potential race winning uh, operation because we start racing in mid-February. Points on the board mid-February. So they're also very keen to get everything done now so that they can then do the winter development work to be ready for the t- taste in late uh, January. Then we're creating the bikes up and we're going to have two days of testing and then we're into point scoring. You know, So they, they have to be ready. One of the things for Top Rack Gordo as well is that when we spoke to Garrett Gerloff at the end of last season about the challenges of adapting from a Yamaha to a BMW, Gerloff said that the biggest thing was when the rear wheel's in the air and it comes back into contact with the asphalt, that it really unsettles the BMW. And this is basically what caused Top Rack's first crash in the BMW. Down in towards turn five, the downhill left-hander in Portimao, he had the bike endo into the corner and once it touched down, it basically caused him to crash the bike. He said he learned a lot from that, but it was indicative that right from the get-go, this is a little bit of a warning for what the BMW is like. Yeah, and you can engineer that out because swing arms are free. You can Your electronics are free. The biggest thing that controls the back end after you've done all those mechanical grip things, which are obviously a compromise between corner entry, corner cornering and corner exit. Um, but you can change those kind of things in a superbike. And a lot of riders have got specific uh, choices for swinging arm. But electronics is a big thing. Remember BMW genuinely do all their own electronics. They don't even use the Morelli system that everybody else does. They use their own system and their own software and their, their own philosophy about it. Maybe that's, again, it's car-derived originally. So maybe a lot of the input they get from back in Germany is, is from car people, car experts. So, but you know, we're in early days of it. Um, but yeah, it's not. That's what I say. It's not an automatic, and they will have to get a lot of things fixed quickly to be able to go to Australia ready to to race race. As ever on the Paddock Pass podcast, we try and do our best to get everyone on the inside and understand exactly what's happening. And to that mark, we managed to grab a couple of minutes with Top Rack just to get his thoughts on his new BMW M1000 or or. I'm really excited last uh, for three days because, uh, you know, the last three days I'm start to excited. But, uh, you know, five weeks is very long. I'm go to every day the gym and I'm not to stop. But, uh, you know, uh, Yamaha decision for about me. This is not nice, but uh, anyway, we are starting finally. I'm not talking about uh, the Yamaha more 
but uh, the, finally we are starting the, the testing and uh, I'm very enjoying, I'm very happy here and uh, we will see, you know, the first ride is completely different uh, after four years with the other bike and I feeling is different but uh, today we changed something and I feeling bike much better than yesterday and especially, you know, when I'm uh, enter the corner, I feeling is much better and uh, this is very positive for me because normally I'm very strong on the brake mm -hmm. now uh, still we are strong in the BMW just uh, we need to improve um, the, the fast corner uh -huh. but uh, looks like also today we are a big improve just we need to more understand the bike because uh, we are not uh, did uh, many laps the total yesterday and today 31 laps and this is not enough for the to understand the bike but uh, general is good uh, especially today we did very good lap time because today also afternoon we are just uh, uh, one hour 30 minutes and also the, the track is not uh, full dry the, everywhere the the wet parts mm -hmm. but uh, the general i'm very happy the feedback is very good and looks like uh, we are coming very strong okay we have a time because uh -huh. I need uh, more time I need uh, more laps for understand the bike for the good setup and uh, but thanks for everyone because everybody is working uh, really hard and uh, because uh, we are very hungry for the win for the world title we will see uh, we are just uh, starting now if uh, uh, in uh, Harris is good uh, uh, the weather I'm very happy because the Harris uh, is a very good track for the braking especially. Mm -hmm. I'm more understanding my bike. Anyway, we will see. But it looks like now I'm very happy and I'm smiling and very positive. Gordo, it was good to hear from Toprak after his first couple of days on the bike in Portimao. Like I said, he's been in Jerez and Valencia since then. But it's all about trying to limit how many of your test days you use as well. They've got 10 days, I think, for the majority of teams and riders to be able to use during the course of the season. So BMW don't want to go overboard this week, but they do need to make sure they were able to get the mileage for a top rack. One of the things the top rack talked about was the aero of the bike and the fact that it allows him a lot more ability to be able to just concentrate on corner exit. He's not having to manhandle the bike like he had to do with the Yamaha. Coming out of the last corner in Portimao, he said that it could control the wheelie an awful lot better. Whether that's the electronics, the weight distribution, the wing, whatever it is, that seemed to be a big factor for him. And then that top speed, obviously, a massive thing for Top Rack. Well, I spoke to the technical director of BMW uh, at the end of the year and a lot of the bodywork changes we saw in the new homologation bike for 2023 were aero-based because we can't change aero in Superbike. Once you've committed to what you're going to be, that's what you're going to be. And they even had two different front ends because eh? they, they homologated two different bikes so they could use the enclosed, more fared-in front wheel or not because one was on the one model and one was on the other. They took it that seriously. They had big problems uh, in 22 with where the hot air from the engine exited the bike, it actually exited almost all sideways, which actually made the bike bigger, it caused a higher coefficient of drag overall with the rider on the bike the, the, the bike was effectively wider even though the bodywork was the same size, so part of the reason for the big wing is increased downforce but it's also air management over the rider, over the bike and through the bike so they spent an awful lot of time and effort to improve that and part of the reason is that the engine was getting too hot BMW is always in a very powerful engine, but last year they were losing power because the bike was they had cooling problems, trying to keep the thing at the optimum temperature. So they lost horsepower, even though the bike, in theory, has got very strong horsepower. Um, so they concentrated an awful lot of effort there last year. And all their riders are quite tall. Pretty much all the BMW riders are average height or taller. So they, they understood that they needed to make a very good aero package because of the rider on top of it. So top rack's going to have that as a that was already engineered in. So he's probably going to feel that as a uh, an improvement. Um, that all those things, the BMW is obviously the potential is all there for being a competitive package. It's got a modern engine, a fast engine, and so on. They actually spent time last year making the engine more rideable, and they, but they spent they kept going on about aero, aero, aero as a big change. And again. Once it's there, it's set. 
what the good news seems to be that that set from last year is already working for Top Rack due to the comments they gave. Gordo, you mentioned about uh, how soon it would take to win for Top Rack. When do you actually think he could win? Uh, in Phillip Island, because of the nature of the track, because it's a tyre-saving thing, because you can't just go out and beast out 20-odd laps, you can't do that at Phillip Island. We've seen some pretty cookie results over the years in every class, super sports, super bike, all predicated on the person who looks after their tyres best generally ends up being in the top three in the results. So you can't tell me that Top Rack is not, definitely not, going to win a race at Phillip Island in first time out. Maybe the next three or four races will be much more difficult. Maybe he'll arrive there completely ready and maybe it'll take half a year to be to be 23-22 lap competitive. That's a question for you, uh, Gord, and for you, Steve, as well. Because the one thing about Phillip Island um, is it's such a an unusual track. It's not a typical track in any way, shape or form. Uh, and obviously, World Superbike's first test is... Uh, at Phillip Island uh, and you know spending whatever it is two weeks down in Phillip Island uh, in the middle of Australian summer is not exactly uh, punishment <laughs> the end of the Australian summer David that's why it's not punishment the middle of the summer might well be exactly punishment. yeah well yeah that's right you're not actually going to catch fire or anything you will actually <laughs> sort of make it through more or less alive but yeah um the trouble is so you've you've got these couple of days of testing but what you're learning is about, you know, yes, your rider is really fast around here or no, your rider is not very fast around here. And you're not really learning a great deal about the bike because, you know, you know it's all long corners. There's only a couple of uh, there's only a couple of breaking points. I think with this is one of the things which occasionally has come up in MotoGP as well about, you know, should we go testing in in uh, in Phillip Island? But there's no point because you're not actually learning it, learning anything about the bike. You're learning about, you know, your rider is really quite good. Yeah, well, I mean, yes, I agree with you. When it comes to race pace, that's true. It is a very unusual track, which is part of the reason why people love it, I think. Um, it's so fast in corners. So you can learn a lot about your bike, but you're not, it's not Hereth or somewhere that throws up every kind of corner you can possibly have in every circumstance. Um, yeah, Phillip Island is not the ideal testing track, but we used to go there in January. When I was a lad, we used to go there in January for a big test and all the top teams with money. Suzuki used to hire a track for a week and bring the GP guys, the Moto, the, what is now a Moto America guys, the everybody, or Japanese guys and World Superbike. And they would hire the place for a few days. All the Honda, Ducati, everybody used to go to Phillip Island to test the winter because before Qatar and anywhere else, that's where you could test. So you can learn from it, but as I say, as you say, exactly right, it's very limiting. The most important thing also is that you can tune the bike, get the rider to be doing lap times that, that blow the stopwatches off the wall. But you can't ride like that in a race. So it's actually a weird thing where normally if a, when you're tested at a track, you, you turn up for the race ready to, to make a race record. But because of tyres, because it's so left-handed, because it's so fast, all those reasons we know, you can't then go and show the true performance of the bike. And anybody that tries it, guaranteed ends up finishing the race away down. They could be in the podium place, with seven laps to go and finish 10th. We've seen that before many times. So We saw it in the MotoGP race this year. You know, um, the, 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 who was it? Was it Jorge Martin leading, the, leading Jorge the race? Martin. Yeah, leading the race, looking really, really comfortable. Looks like he had it under control. Uh, and came two laps, two laps short, you know, ran out of tyres two laps before the end, and that was it. Yeah, everyone thinks you look like a you look like a genius at the start, and then you look like a dunce. And <laughs> the worst part for our team was everyone then pinpointed this as the moment that cost him the world championship. When it can't be the moment that cost him the world championship, but uh, that's Philip Island for you, and we see it year on year. And it is what makes PI really good for us. You know, it always throws up a good race. Um, I think the one thing that's probably a li little bit different for us is that Bautista is so good around there that it means that for his championship defence, it gets off to a good start more often than not. But you never know what's going to happen this year. The new regs are going to be interesting. I think for me, with regards to top rack, I'm kind of circling Assen, really, round three by the time I expect that he should be able to, to really challenge for 
a race win in in normal conditions and we'll see what he can do for that one david just because we have you on the pod we've got a couple of ex moto gp riders making the move to world Superbikes this year as well and this has been a path that's been pretty well trodden in recent years if you think back to you know the likes of locatelli and Bulaga, they've come across to the super sport class and then their factory super bike riders now we're going to see Andrea Iannone make his comeback after four years after his doping ban. We're going to see Sam Lowe's move across as well on the Mark VDS Ducati. This is good and exciting news for the championship. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like in both cases, uh, for a start, I think Iannone fits in perfectly to the World Superbike paddock because he was always... Um, um it, he was he, he was never polished he was always a little bit uh, uh he was always a little bit special there was a i remember a, a an italian journalist friend of mine telling me oh, quite a long time ago when he and only first moved up to motor gp uh he was saying because he used to write uh press releases for them um it, when Ian only was in was in the one two fives, and he was trying to explain to me about his background. He actually comes from quite a poor background, and you know, um, uh, they were the, the, his family were always involved in all sorts of things. And he was sort of, sort of saying, "Yes, yes, Ian only he is. Um, you have a word for it in English. Yes, he's a chav, um, which is um, <laughs> oh, uh, oh. yowza, uh, yeah, exactly. So." Yeah, he is. He's very. He's he's all about the bling. He likes. Uh, he always liked his money. He always had. Like he always wanted the bigger. Uh, the even when he was not earning the kind of money that Rossi had, he was always trying to have a bigger motorhome than Rossi. Um, he has the kind of personality. He is a little bit older. He is a little bit more um, experienced. Uh, I was quite impressed by his lap times early in the test. I think he is going to be competitive straight away. The Ducati. Again, the, the 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 Ducati World Superbike it seems to work for everyone, um, but it's not it's not the dominant package. It's a really good package, but it's not the dominant package that Bautista makes it look look like. Because Bautista is just he is so he's melding with that bike um, uh, just like so much that I, that I think it's going to be it's going to be interesting and it's going to be good for Superbike. It's going to be good for the for, for the profile of it. I think if you're a uh, ex MotoGP rider, even someone like uh, you know, who's had a few years out, the way to come into Superbike is to come into on a Ducati, because it's the, it's not the easiest package, but it's a package with the greatest potential, and your MotoGP bike has been more difficult and more tunable, and and trickier to set up than any Superbike you're ever going to get on. So the Ducati has is now a more polished bike. They actually made it smoother last year than the previous one and easier to ride. You, you, you know, you are. That is a bike to come into Superbike on, if you're going to come in from MotoGP to Superbike. That's what you would do. Yeah, and the other thing is, uh, when he was in the factory Ducati team, he would have been riding uh, a Panigale just for training. So, like he, he has lots and lots of laps on it, you know, uh, 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 and he has also lots and lots of laps on it, you know, even even before the uh, before then. So they've, it, it's not a completely unknown package for him. Yeah, I think one of the things as well for Ian One is it's always easy to forget just how highly rated he was at one stage. You know, he was a guy that was winning Moto2 races by 10 seconds on the speed up. He was the guy that's been a factory Ducati, Aprilia, Suzuki man. You know, if all these factories keep offering you a seat, it's because they know there's something about you. So he might have been out for four years. It's going to take him time to come back. But... I'm not going to be the least bit surprised whenever he has some great weekends and some really good performances. Gordo, you mentioned about the Ducati. I found it really interesting that Sam Lowe's first comments on the bike were, you know, after three laps, he had a big smile on his face because this bike is nice and user friendly. The electronics on worn tires really help as well. So all those things, that's why it's such an easy, well, I say an easy bike. It's a, it's a better bike to transition onto from the Grand Prix paddock. Yeah, and it also has... A lot of revs, they're going to get the revs back next year that they lost this year as part of the many changes that are happening. It's a more familiar thing. It's a more racing-oriented motorbike than anything else on the on the track. Even the Honda, which is still halfway between being a the idea of a Fireblade road bike and a MotoGP bike with some of the technology and so on they've got inside. Um, so the it's, it's a rider-friendly thing compared to any MotoGP bike those guys have been on. Any MotoGP rider is going to feel happier on a Ducati. And I think because of the training and the experience and so on, 
any good, really rated, and all those names they'll have are rated in either Moto2 or MotoGP, uh, should be able to come to Superbike and be competitive right away. Not winning right away, not dominant, but they should all be competitive because their training has been unmatched. If they've come through the MotoGP system, it's a much better way of coming to Superbike than any other system, unless you're a top rack or a Michael van der Mark who was homegrown and has learned how to get on the, get this Superbike thing done from inside. David, just um, in relation to, like I mentioned earlier on about some of the riders coming from the Grand Prix paddocks, a lot of it is from the Moto2 class. You know, if you look at the Superbike grid now, you know, like I mentioned, Locatelli, Bulaga, Aguilar, Gardner, a lot of these guys have come up through the ranks from the Grand Prix classes and now they get the chance to come on to a Superbike and really show what they can do because, you know, with the exception of Remy Gardner having been, you know, a one-year MotoGP rider, he never really got the chance on the KTM to show what he could do. Yeah, I mean, uh, Sam Lowe's also a one-year MotoGP rider uh, uh, with uh, Aprilia, back when the Aprilia was not a particularly great bike. Um, again, someone who never really got the chance to show what he was capable of doing. So, um, But yeah, I, I think what Gordo says is spot on. It is a very, uh, for a start, it's a long season, so you get a lot of racing. Um, you get a lot. It also, you've got um, the riders who are coming through. Usually, they're, they're coming through from the better teams, and the better teams are very good at managing their riders, uh, preparing the weekend, uh, working towards getting a good setup, and understanding what it takes to perform um, at the very highest level. So they have a they're mentally prepared to make the kind of step. The, the, the talent is clearly there uh, so I think they're going to be uh, they fit in very well and I'm really looking forward to see what uh, what Sam Lowes is going to be capable of I think that when we look at trends inside World Superbike all our best riders a lot of our best riders now and probably all our best riders in the future are going to have come through the MotoGP system somehow or other because that's what's been happening and as we spoke about earlier the gap between national racing and Superbike is wider and taller than it's been for a long time. It's a very different thing riding a BSB bike and a, a Superbike World Championship bike. So that, to me, is what's going to happen. Um, it, it's already happening. It's it's possibly the majority of the field now. You could fairly describe as Grand Prix riders. Steve? We're just about to play a clip as well from Sam's debrief after the Valencia Grand Prix, his last MotoGP race, before he moved on to his World Superbike program. And that was actually one of the things that came up in it as well, Gordo, whenever he was asked, I think it was by Adam, you know, about taking a risk, taking a chance to come across. And Sam basically is very straight about it, saying that there isn't that opportunity for British riders. But now, maybe with the European Moto2 Championship getting a little bit stronger, that becomes the route into the Grand Prix classes rather than going through the Red Bull rookies or CEV or Junior GP and into Moto3. Well, there's a massive problem in that Britain doesn't want to lose its best riders to any championship. It doesn't want to see them going on in anywhere else. Uh, BSB wants to make itself a, a, a success, which it is. They have always wanted to, certainly in the last 10 years or more, uh, hold on to as many of their best riders as they can. They don't want to see them necessarily moving on to Superbike or anything else. So that traditional pathway is kind of long gone even into Superbike. So when you're a team manager in Superbike looking for a new rider, you're not no longer looking at BSB or Australia or any traditional places anymore. You're looking at, that guy's not got a GP ride. Oof, I'll have him. Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing that you, which I think is one of the reasons people are moving over from Moto2 to, 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 to World Superbikes, is that, uh, and also not coming across from, from let's say, BSB, Moto America. In BSB, if you're riding, you're probably getting a wage. It might not be very much, but you were, you're probably earning money. Um, uh, I was chatting to someone who's involved in Moto America, um, and they were telling me that it, it's the same there. There's There are really talented American riders, um, but if they're riding in, in, in Moto America, they're earning money. You know, they're, they're probably earning six figures, which is tidy, where 
Whereas if you want to race in Moto2, uh, you need to be able to bring 100, 200 grand, something like that. Um, you have to live in Spain. You have to move over there. I mean, the thing is that that structure is provide is generating an awful lot of talent, but it's also generating an awful lot of debt. And at some point, that debt needs to be repaid. You know, people want to start actually earning money. Uh, and MotoGP at the moment is quite young. It's comparatively young. There's a lot of riders in their 20s, capable of riding through into their 30s. Um, and so it, there's no real... Um, there's there's not a lot of incentive to move though to bump those those you know riders off the bikes and move people up. There's not a lot of space for talent. So to move across to the World Superbike paddock, where um, there's a very good chance they will actually get paid, or at least not have to pay a huge amount of money to actually go racing uh, and have a chance of success, um, and there for there to be a path forward, you know, for there to be a path into the the the, the top class. I think that makes it a, quite an attractive prospect for, for for riders I mean there's a lot of stuff in the background of racing about the costs of it, who pays etc that I'm sure the public don't really understand but there's an awful lot of riders paying for the rides, even very good riders, all over now as you say the top riders in BSB will be getting a decent wage the top riders in Superbike are, will be getting a decent wage and the same with MotoGP I'm sure there's plenty of people paying or a sponsor's paying for their rides even in MotoGP even even though you've got this massive training field going on. And, and I'm not talking about the top guys. I'm talking about the field at the back. In Superbike, we have a particular problem in that we've lost a lot of global sponsorship through 2018, cigarette money, you name it. Um, MotoGP going four-stroke was always going to take a lot of money out of the, MotoG, uh, the Superbike paddock, has done so. Um, even the factories are, are, are paying four or five times what they did to raise two-strokes in MotoGP. And they, how did they do that? In many ways, they took money from superbike programs, superbike sponsorship, etc. Took it to MotoGP because that's where they were going to be able to uh, sell road bikes from. You know, Yamaha's Rossi's bike and Yamaha looked quite a lot like the superbike. They looked like quite a lot like the R6, and all of that stuff ultimately was used as branding. So MotoGP became more than just a race series; it became a lot of the focus of the branding, certainly the technology money, because you could do what you wanted instead of the limitations of superbike. There was lots and lots of things happened over a number of years. The bottom line is for superbike is, uh, and the whole paddock. I mean, there's lots of people paying for the rides via personal sponsorship because the teams don't have the money anymore. And what's keeping the top teams of Superbike going is manufacturer support, which again, I think a lot of people don't understand. A lot of those riders in the second teams and within those factories are being paid by the factory. They're not being paid by a, a, the team itself. And if the team are, they're getting that money from the factory. It's like, if we, we want a good rider, we'll do all this and you pay the rider. And the manufacturer says, okay, we'll buy it. So they've got four solid riders, two stars and two solid guys. You multiply that up across the manufacturers and you've got a fairly decent championship. So the money thing's a can of worms. It's a big can of worms. It but is massive. That, that pay for rides is a very big deal now. Sorry, Steve. I think it's one of those situations where you do have it where the manufacturers are putting in that investment. What I find interesting is though the Super Sport class, we have 22 riders, I think, confirmed for next season. 11 of those we're either full-time Moto2 or Moto3 riders, products of the Grand Prix system one way or the other. So I think it's quite telling that's where our talent is coming from, like you said, Gordo. The big reason for that is Moto America, even Aussie Superbikes now with the likes of Mad Mike Jones down there, BSB, they want to be destination championships. They want it where their riders are able to get that manufacturer interest because that's how those championships survive. Yeah, uh, I think you also have to remember that there is now. I mean, uh, as Gordo was saying, there used to be the path through the chat through the various production championships. You know, you'd start off on super on, on super sport or whatever, or national super sport, go go to national superbike, maybe move up to world super sport um, and uh, and world superbike. Um, now th th there is a real structure. Uh, surrounding or for to, through the Grand Prix. This is one thing Dorna has done really well 
for Grand Prix racing, not for World Superbike racing. And really, you need the same sort of structure for World Superbike racing. Because if you think about it, you've got your pre, you've got your pre GP and your mini GP and your, uh, and your Ovali systems and your junior GPs and your, and your FIM CEV championship. And all of these are basically on the, on, on your Honda 250 single cylinder four strokes. Uh, and then you're moving up to the Moto 2. We're getting the Moto, the Europe, I think the level in the European Moto 2 championship seems to be growing as well that seems to be getting higher as well that is uh, uh, again uh, uh, an important um, an important step I mean 10 years ago if you think about it the the Spanish Superbike Championship used to be a really big or it used to be the most important championship inside of the in spite of the inside of the CEV inside of the Spanish uh, Championship now it's almost like a sideshow you know Moto 2 is more important the the, um, the the Junior Moto 3 Championship is the Junior Moto 3 Championship is basically Basically, you know your, your your talent pool. That's where people, teams, Grand Prix teams are uh, developing their talent, selecting their talent, trying to understand their talent, ready to get them up into the Grand Prix paddock. And what is missing is something similar for superbikes. And I don't see how we get that in superbikes because, as I say, a lot of the people uh, a cost, b willingness. Um, that there's a hundred reasons why we can't concentrate the whole pod on that but ultimately as I say the gap between all those places is getting wider and MotoGP is producing a surfeit of talent every year I mean you're losing riders out of that paddock and everybody goes can he not get a ride this year can he not get a ride this year well it's because of some 18 year old Spanish kids turned up and think wow he might be the next Marquez you know every year they throw up at least one person like that through each class you know, it's when you throw the net that wide in a small geographical place, i.e. Spain in the Spanish-speaking world, even if you're only really concentrating there and other people have to go there to join in and, and pay for the privilege at the time, unless they're lucky enough to get a, 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 go through one of the one-make series, then you're going to create an awful lot of talent because you're training them from a very young age. You're training them very well. They've got to progress by performance. And everybody's looking down that way for the riders now. They're not looking over there. They're not looking over there. So you've got more chance to go from there just because people are paying attention. I mean, we know people have went from Superbike to MotoGP and some of the teams that were going to sign them didn't really know who they were. But somebody somewhere said, no, he's a good get him. But they, they hadn't been paying attention to them. You know? And and that was a while ago. Now, why are they looking anywhere else? Even Toprak didn't get any MotoGP. So... <laughs> <laughs> that that's that to me is the end game. That's it. That's the that's the the final. If there isn't a space for top rack, how on earth are you going to get any MotoGP unless you go through one of the Donna sponsored systems? How do you do it? I think that's fair enough. And like I said, Gordo, you could have that as a discussion point for an entire podcast. We're going to take a quick break on the podcast because when we come back after the break, we're going to get our Christmas wish lists as well. But uh, just before we do, we're going to play things out with Sam Lowe's giving his thoughts, like I said, ahead of his rookie campaign in World SBK. I've not really thought about it until this week, but it's hit home a bit now. It's, just, uh, it's a long time, you know, it's the end of uh, 10 years here. So it's a bit of a... You always want to look back, do better, don't you? Every rider, I think, unless you're Valet or even Mark, well, even them, I guess, they look back and want to do some things better. So, one of them. Yeah. Was it easy to keep the emotions in check all weekend? So? Yeah, not too bad. Yeah. yeah, not. The race was difficult. Do you know what? Do you know, because of the schedule now, honestly, there's a lot of waiting around. Do you know, when you're in this sort of position, it's long. Do you know what I mean? It makes it worse. You think about it. Basically, there's no warm up. Normally, you get up, you have warm up, you get this sound, but now it's like just overthinking it a little bit. So, start of the race, I was a bit steady. But yeah, it was uh, not too bad. On the in-lap, I had a bit of a cry to myself and managed to hold it off by the time I got back to the garage. Yeah. Sam, you're, you're like one of a little group of riders that just like put their balls on the line to come to GP and really take a risk and make compromises elsewhere in your life about that. When you sort of reflect on that, is that something you're kind of proud of? you think it's something that maybe more people need to do? Honestly, in the... Um, yeah, somebody told me when I was 19 and working with my dad down the quarry that I'd be a Grand Prix winner. I, you know, I'd have took that. So when I won in Supersport and had the chance to come to Grand Prix without really, you know, I didn't have to say, I look at the guys now, or Tony, or for example, because my teammate, how they've come through, it's a lot different to me. And I'm happy that I took the punt and come across, because it would have been easy for me to go to Superbike. You know, when I won Supersport, I had a chance to go Superbike, two-year deal, Crescent, right? A lot more money, 
triple the money what I would got to come here with. Do you know what I mean? So if it's about that, I could have. I was 23 years old. So I mean, it's easy. Do you know what I mean? But I wanted to try and come to Grand Prix. I had some good advice of some people around me, and I don't know if it paid off or not. Do you know what I mean? I think it did. I feel, I'm proud of what I've achieved. I, like I said, I wanted to do more. I think everyone wants to do more, but it paid off, and um, I get to go back there now anyway and see if I can do it anyway. <laughs> So one race, Sam, that stands out in your time in this paddock? Which is what, one weekend? <laughs> okay. Okay. Which are <laughs> the first one I, I would up? say maybe Kota, because for me, I never, genuinely probably didn't even believe I could win a Grand Prix. Do you know when I come across yeah. and I was take three or speed up and go with speed up and everyone, oh, it's not the goodbye. And I didn't I never really believe I could win a Grand Prix. So then to do it was like, oh, that was nice. Um, Aragon 2020, the second race, because we'd already done a weekend. Came to the second weekend where everyone's obviously on it. The lap times were fast because then I won by a long way. That was a nice race. Um, and however, this year, because last year I was done, I was at home, I was struggling. I had three months of not hell, but you know, my shoulder was so bad, worse than I thought, worse than people thought. So to come back this year and get a win was nice for me to, to get that. So that was probably the one, the one that meant the most because it was just at the time of year where talking for next year to, to go Superbike, I was already thinking about it and it allowed me to show my speed still to get an opportunity to go there. So without that, it would have been a tough year. Do you think also the Aprilia chapter was a case or an example of how timing in your career is like everything? I think, I think I could have done a lot better in that situation. But I think that I was older in my age, but younger. Like, you know, I was a professional rider from... Okay, when I won World Supersport, that I was a professional rider, but not really. Do you know what I mean? Just then, so 2013. I mean, in 2017, I was in MotoGP. So I wasn't really ready, not ready for it, because I was fast enough, but it's more than that, isn't it, in MotoGP? So it's difficult. So my racing age, because we joke about it, I'm old, but I've done nothing compared to a lot of them, especially at that point. So it was maybe the wrong call, but it's so easy after, isn't it? I could have won every race on a Monday. Or <laughs> could have won, a, let's say, a lot more races on a Monday. Do you know what I mean? So it's difficult. I, I don't regret that. I, it was a strange one, because I actually signed for a period to go in 2016. And then we changed it, and it, that was already a bit weird. So we delayed it a year, and I did a year with Christine Meta too, which was mega. At that point, I had the option to get out, and I probably should have done, and stayed longer in Meta 2, tried to win, maybe gone to VDS at that point. <laughs> you know what I mean? I also could have not done good and never got the chance to go, and I'm happy that I did. So, I don't know, I think you always make the choice you make, don't you? And you have to, and I can sleep well with that. I, I, I would like to second year on the Aprilia, because as bad as it was, it was a time where they weren't doing amazing anyway. Scott jumped on it and didn't do any... Arguably, didn't do really any better than me. It was a tough year as well. So just to keep me for a second year for everyone, you've got to make a step, aren't you? And sometimes I wasn't that far. Towards the end of the year, yeah, because you know you're finished and it's done. So I'd like to see in a second year and understood, because like I said, a lot of them guys that are there now, I don't think I'm Mark, I don't think I'm Pekka, I don't think I'm Valentino, but if the shoe goes out on a good bike, I could have done all right. But so everyone in the paddock would say, do you know what I mean? It's easy to say. But yeah, I made everything, decision I did at the time and I was happy with it. Thanks, Sam. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. And it's that time of year, Gordo. Have you written your list to Santa? Uh, yes, uh, which will be roundly ignored um, because <laughs> I'm, I'm very, very badly on the naughty list as usual. Um, we'll get you a good ba- a bag of coal instead of just a piece of coal for you, I, Gordo. Bag of coal is a useful thing. In my house, I've got a wood burner. It's great. That, I'd love a bag of coal. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, I have got the usual. Uh, in terms of books you know I, I equate books with the winter time when you're at home um and the dark nights and everything else I, I read more in the winter than i do any other time of year um and i might have said this before on the pod but every year i used to go to glasgow every saturday before christmas to see if motorcourse had turned up in the big bookshop there and the big old-fashioned harry potter style specialist bookshop that used to be the center of glasgow because they would just get it in because they did uh, you know, and I used to go there every Saturday, and if it wasn't in the first weekend of December, it would be in the second or the third. I'd just go until I got it, and I would just spend months going through it all. Um, books are a big deal for me, so yeah, motor course, um, which I'm very fortunate enough to write about a uh, part of, um, will be one of my shopping lists. Yeah, motorcourse.com. You get changed for sixty euro and. It is the Bible at the end of every year. I think we pretty much say it all the time. Neil is a big rider on it, as usual, again this year. So it's definitely always worth having a read of that. Dave, what about for you? Is there any books on your wish list? Uh, uh, well, I mean, uh, yes, uh, the the Superbike book. 
Um, uh, I was fortunate enough to be sent that with Kevin Cameron and some uh, photos from the start of the Superbike era. The, the photos are fantastic. The, the photos give you real insight into what's going on inside of it. But also, like Kevin Cameron is so good at explaining in, in just a few words the, the the genesis of everything, you know, like what's going on. So, yeah, that if you get a chance, um, uh, get that. And also, uh, just a quick, uh, a quick shout out. I'm, I'm also looking forward to... Uh, reading uh, our friend Dennis Noyes' uh, uh, novel because he's been... I've been talking to him about his novel for at least 10 years. It's not motorcycle-related <laughs> at all. Yeah, yeah probably 10, 10, 15 years, as long as I've known him, certainly. And uh, he's finally finished it. So um, uh, he's, uh, I'm, I'm getting a copy of that and I'm really looking forward to reading that. I'm very excited to read Dennis's book as well. And uh, once we do, I'm sure we'll have a, a little chat about it on the pod. But uh, Superbike, an, illust- an illustrated early history is, I have to say, absolutely must buy. It's $75 from superbikebook.com. And it's just fantastic. Kev Cameron is always worth reading, but John Owen's photos are just tremendous as well. Whenever I got my copy of the book, I was due to go out for dinner and I had to keep telling Neve, no, no, another five minutes, five minutes, five minutes, and just I'll read one more page and look at one more picture. And uh, when we arrived at the restaurant, I think they were ready to throw us out straight away because we were that late. Well, I had a slightly similar, slightly different experience. When it came through the door and I saw, I realised what it was, I opened it on the kitchen counter. I was on my way out the door and I had to read the first couple of texts from Kevin because I was as usual transfixed thinking, oh, he makes you think. He explains things and he makes you think for yourself and as him. And I read the first bit on the kitchen table, already late for going out the door. So, you know, and I and I read that and then I thought, okay, if I start on this, I'm never going to get finished. I closed the book, put it on a bookshelf, and I am going to finish it on Christmas Day, literally, <laughs> as a little present to myself. When everything's going a bit too mad in the morning, before Christmas dinner, I'm going to get that book out when they're watching something terrible on television, I'm going to get the book out and read the rest of it. It's a beautiful thing, and it evokes a, the, the era that got me into motorbikes in the first place. Those kind of things were just as important as the Grand Prix things for me, the mad high handlebar American things, was one of the things that really turned me on to motorbikes as a young guy. Yeah, and the other thing is, that what's really interesting is the, is the photography, because... Um, uh, you and me, Steve, were in the uh, in a WhatsApp group with uh, a couple of Grand Prix uh, photographers, with Cormac, uh, Ryan Meenan, and and uh, Rob Gray of Polarity Photo, and it's always interesting hearing that, and also, of course, Tony Goldsmith. You know, it's always fascinating hearing their um, sort of take on photography because this was analog photography. This was with film. You know, you were pointing something and you didn't know what it was going to be, whether you had anything until you were finished, until you actually got out. Uh, uh, the, the, when they talk about setting up photographs, um, it's it's really interesting. And that's what makes these photos so special. Like some of them are quite obviously easy to get you know it's just people working on bikes but there are some photos which are just stunning which you can tell that there's they've had to put the the photographer um, has had to put a lot of work into getting that photograph um, with no guarantee it's going to be paying off and you can't just you know what they do what you do with a digital camera you know you press the button and you just let it go and you've got 10 shots and one of them is probably going to be fine Um, you take one maybe two shots and hope that it's going to work out yeah, I have to say, I'm obviously not a, a Cormac, a Rob, a Tony, a Scott Jones. Like, they're the, the guys that are in our group, Dave, that uh, will give their thoughts on photos. But uh, I can take a photograph. But when I went back to look at some, I found some the other day, actually, from the first British Grand Prix Formula One race that I went to, which would have been Silverstone in 97. And I found some pictures. And my God, I'd say that I got one out of a roll in, in focus and you're just there. This is a disaster. And that's what makes it so impressive when you look at the stuff in that Superbike book. It really is amazing. I can't I can't praise it highly enough. Yeah, and in the good old bad old days, and I did actually get into the world of journalism at the end of film when it was there was still virtually no digital and people would send you photographs um, and you sit and go through them to create the sports pages at that time. It would have been Superbike magazine or whatever. Um, and you sit and look at them all. And what really impressed you about the people that were really good was a thing called hit rate. 
So as you say, you've got you would have twenty four images on one roll of film, and the real pros would go out there, and as David said, you wouldn't know what you had until you you actually developed them. But though we sometimes, because of deadline and everything else, would actually develop those films for the photographers, or they would send you a full sheet of films because you had to get it literally stuck on a page and sent to a printer somewhere. So therefore, you saw that you didn't see their nice presented best photographs of the weekend. You'd see what they had. And the hit rate of the top guys is would always astonish me. I mean, it was really, you know, if there was twenty four pictures, there would be ten usable and six belters. Oh, you know, when they were well into the weekend and, and warmed up, and uh, no, it was it's quite impressive. Uh, in those days, the 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 picture that beautiful American Superbike book, you're not going to get the repro quality and the the, the the there's obviously a lot of graininess in the the photographs because of the technology of the time. And the fact you're putting a big book, so don't expect it to be, you know, a 4K TV still image. But that makes it more evocative of the time. It puts you in the place even more strongly. That's what I loved about it. The image quality, the, the, the quality of the photographs is incredible. But the technology today can't match what we have today. But that shows you that it's a, you know, that's a, a, a real thing. It feels period, but it's, just that it's one of those things you're going to keep going back to till the day you die. That's the way I look at it. Definitely, and and I don't need to be insulted like that, Gordo. One out of twenty-four is obviously a very good hit rate. Of course, it is. Um, other than that, there's a couple of other books that are worth looking at as well. The Dunlop Dynasty from Stephen Davidson. We're going to have Stephen on the pod soon enough as well, and uh, we'll chat to him about that book. But more than likely, we'll just be chatting to him about his life in road racing as well. Stephen is. Mr. Road Racing Photographer. So that's going to be a book that I'm going to be excited to read over the course of the winter. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I love about following him on Twitter is his occasional uh, series of photos of um, abandoned or, you know, uh, isolated uh, uh, Irish um, petrol stations, which is just amazing. Just uh, just amazing. Occasionally, I sort of, you, you'll come across those sort of things in the middle of uh, the... Uh, well, somewhere, anywhere. And, and I always have to think of him and think, yeah, yeah, it is. It's, it's quite special. I was uh, just driving home one day and I, I don't know what station was on, but suddenly I heard Davison through my speakers just talking about his new book and uh, I immediately changed the channel. Um, <laughs> other than that, uh, the, the other books that I want to mention is uh, Racing Hitler, Matt Oxley's new book. It's, you know, a bit of a compliment to Stealing Speed, but uh, I've bought a copy of this. I bought a copy copy of this for my dad for his Christmas present. It's obviously a present for me, but I, I did ask Matt to sign it to Mickey just that it makes it clear that, you know, this was this those thought went into this. But it was mostly just because I really want to read this book. And you can get it from Matt's website. He's he's got links on his Twitter and things like that. It's £28. And uh, I'm sure it's going to be a really good read as well. I mean, Matt's a, a genius, as we all know. He's he's an amazing, hardest working actor in rock and roll. Does so many different things. Brilliant writer in any medium. Um, but I'm actually quite shocked, Steve, because I thought our Scottish guys were meant to be the tight ones. I can't believe that you <laughs> bought your yourself a book via your dad and had the temerity temerity, I say, to get it signed to him. That's I thought I was low. That's pretty low. Gordo, I bought a set of golf clubs for my dad. He's never used he's never used them for a shot. <laughs> Was that was that tax deductible though? That was tax deductible. Yeah, I've got I've got I've got barbecues for him. I've got cookbooks. You name it, Gordo. I'm a very generous son. Um, other than that, though, it's obviously going to be for the Paddock Pass podcast. The best Christmas present you can get, David, is patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. We're going to have a lot of content over the course of the winter going through on Patreon. And uh, I think uh, Neil, Adam and yourself have a few interviews coming up for us. Yeah, we've got a few um, uh, interviews from the uh, from the paddock. I'm off the top of my ha- head. I'm not even sure who we've got. I think we've got Giacomo Guidotti. We've got... Um, Chacanello. Uh, yep, Chacanello as well. Lucio Chacanello. There's there, there's a bunch of, uh, of interviews that will be going up over the winter. Uh, worth your while. It helps us get to the track. Uh, to the track. It helps us make these, um, and it's uh, always it, it's always entertaining. It's always entertaining to uh, to to make and it's always interesting even when I'm at home and uh, you know Neil and, and Adam are at races and I listen to them it's always interesting uh, to hear their the, the paddock notes show the paddock notes is always very very uh, is always incredibly useful to, to find out what's going on 
Yeah, it is actually one that's listened to by a lot of people in the paddock as well. So uh, I, I think we've heard uh, Neil Hodgson and uh, Charlie has got a few times just uh, mentioning it on the course of the TNT sports coverage. So it is worth getting. Check out that patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast. And as ever, if you're looking for a present for the motorcyclist in your life, check out rentall.com and the fit my bike option and you'll be able to see all the parts that fit the bike. So uh, check that out. And as ever, keep an eye out on your pat on your podcast platforms for the next edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. But Gordo, thanks for joining us all the way through this season. Absolute pleasure, mate. I really enjoy doing these things. It's something very different from normal writing, writing stuff. And I enjoy it tremendously, mate. So thanks very much and happy Christmas to everybody. Happy holidays. Yeah, you too, Gordo. And David, good to have you on the Superbike Show once again. Yeah, it's enormous fun to talk about sort of superbikes as well as uh, and and get the actual find out what's actually happening rather than what a bunch of randos are saying about it. Yeah, well, it is possible for you to be able just to get in contact with myself and Gordon at any given time. Um, <laughs> other than that, uh, a big thank you to everyone for listening to this week's show, and we'll be back business as usual next week with some MotoGP shows. of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. Music is provided by the Libertines. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.